in events like this, the thing that you remember the most is the care that you receive. We need to be very attentive to how people are personally managing all of these situations, helping them in the emotional part and helping them with the sessions. You have to be decisive, even if you need to revisit that decision a week after you took it, but keep on giving windows of certainty to people because it's that combination of being caring while being decisive. When you have decisions taken, you feel secure and it gives you freedom. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Darvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader, Silvia de Villa, president of Danone Latin America. It was a great conversation about speaking up and making decisions. Here's a quick bio. Silvia de Villa is Danone's regional president for Latin America, where she runs the commercial operations for one of the company's fastest growing regions. Prior to joining Danone, she spent 12 years in marketing at Mars, 10 of which were in senior leadership roles, ultimately becoming the global CMO of Mars Food. And of course, Silvia spent nearly 12 years rising through the brand management ranks at P&G Latin America and even got her start at McDonald's while still in college. She studied at Unitech Mexico, Tecnologico, Monterrey, and the Harvard Business School. And what I loved about my conversation with Sylvia is hearing how she blends experiences from a number of the world's biggest CPG giants, most recently joining Danone, a company I personally spent a few years at as well. From her time selling kilos of cookies to leaving Venezuela while six months pregnant, to shipping candy bars from Australia to Mexico when a plant had to be shut down, Sylvia has had to make some pretty big decisions under some pretty trying circumstances. Sylvia is an advocate for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion, and she mentions how her experiences as a female leader evolved as her career progressed, sometimes being lonely as the only woman in the room. But it made her learn to speak up, and now as a mentor for rising female leaders, she encourages them to use their voice and not accept the status quo, which is something she also challenges men to do for greater gender equity. Towards the end, we spoke a lot about the world as it is today and the importance of making clear decisions even if the information is imperfect and incomplete, because ultimately that's the only thing we're going to make progress with, especially in today's increasingly challenging and complicated times. So let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Sylvia. Sylvia, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. So Sylvia, so many know your professional story already. As Danone's regional president for Latin America, you run the commercial operations for the food giant in one of the countries, the company's fastest growing regions, where you've been for the past three and a half years. And prior to Danone, you spent 12 years in marketing at Mars, 10 of which were in senior leadership roles, including general management and ultimately the global CMO of Mars Food. You spent nearly 12 years rising to the brand management ranks at P&G Latin America and you got your start at McDonald's as a marketing coordinator. You studied at Unitec Mexico, you studied at Tecnologica Monterrey, and even the Harvard Business School. And there's so much in there that I want to ask about. But first, Sylvia, who were you before at the beginning of your career journey? Can you can you tell us a story from your childhood? 
Sure. I love telling this story because that explains a little bit of the things that really move me. So when growing up, my father passed away when I was very little. I was only seven years old. And then my mom went into having double jobs because she needed to take care of three children. And if we wanted something, we just needed to make it happen. From getting invited to parties and finding a ride that could takes us there and take us back to getting money. So if I really wanted something, I learned how to do a very good recipe that my father really liked about cookies. So every time that I needed something, then a new batch was coming my way. <laughs> and my friends were nice enough that I had a full production line in my house. So I invited two or three friends so they could help me. And after that, I recruited some other friends. And with a little bit of a bonus, they could go and sell, sell the product in their families or in their neighborhood. So it was every time something happened, it was a batch and then a lot of friends. What kind of cookies were they? Nut and sugar cookie. Oh, that sounds amazing. How many of these were you selling? Like, what, what kind of volume were we talking about? <laughs> oh, I mean, again, it was maybe three, four kilos worth of cookies. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but no, only a batch at a time. Huh? It was not everyday business. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like the margins were pretty good on those cookies. The margins are really good. And I just needed to take care of my friends not eating them while producing them because then <laughs> the margins were severely affected. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up making cookies back then, I guess that was your first job. But who did you imagine you'd become? What, what did you want to be when you grew up? I was not sure. My father was an economist. So some, and, and then my brother, which is a years older than me, he went into communication, some like business communication was something that I saw in the horizon. Then I found out that I was very good at selling. I had an aunt that had a store in San Antonio, Texas. So every summer I was going up to San Antonio to help her selling and, and, and she's a very good saleswoman. So she gave me a lot of tips and then I, I became comfortable with getting no's, which is what you need to get used to when you're selling and then being insistent on finding your arguments for the yes. So I think that that became the combination of the things that were moving. I really liked that combination of understanding businesses, selling, and then understanding consumer needs is what it became once I, I went into marketing. Back then, what kinds of things were you selling? What were, I guess, to kind of look at the lessons you were learning back then, when someone did tell you no to what you were selling and what were you selling, how did you get them to say yes? How did you find a, how did you find a yes? How did you close the sale? Well, my business was my cookies. With my aunt, her business was Mexican clothes. My mom started selling clothes in, in, in Mexico as well. So it was more of finding the color, the shape, even asking people to try it on, giving them a matching, maybe just a matching necklace or cross sell the upsell. <laughs> yes, just to make them really tangible. So I think that when people are saying no, it's not the first reaction that we get. It's moving people to see possibilities and going beyond. So that's why my, my aunt was teaching me. So she never let someone go without a sale. She was really good. That's great. Well, so if we, if we 
fast forward to today, how are you similar to that young version of yourself, the the little girl with the assembly line of cookies, selling clothes at your aunt's stores? How are you the same, but but also how are you different? I think that what has kept as part of my essence is that I don't take a no personal and I don't take a no as something that is permanent. Neither of that is a no. So a no is just in my mind is a no for now or no the way that I presented it or no in the current situation. So when I have a no, it's not something that gets me down. It's just, okay, I need to either try harder, find these arguments, time to reflect and find other ways or or kill it. I think that if you don't know how to say no's, then your yeses have no meaning. So if we fast forward into the beginning of your career, what were some of those early defining moments? Are there any stories of early successes or wins in the early days at McDonald's and even at P&G? Well, McDonald's, I think that the interesting part, it was the job I had while I was in the university. And of course, I needed the money. And I joined McDonald's working four hours a week. So, of course, when I got my first check, I realized that that was not going to pay, not even for the gasoline. So, I I (laughs) said, well, I think that I need to try harder. But I started to fall in love with the place. And then I started really to adapt my school towards my working hours. And then little by little, I was already working full-time and I got promoted very fast. So from joining with my, again, four-hour schedule, I went to being a store coordinator and then a several stores coordinator. And then I was less than 20 years old and I had 50 people reporting to me. Wow. So it was like, oh, wow, I can do things. I can get organized. I can lead. I can make things happen. So, yes, I was in the university, but seeing that life and getting paid for that, that was so much fun. Clearly, this this was the job that while I was in the university. Once I finished is is when I joined PNG. So once I, I finished the university, I wanted to just spent some time abroad. So I went uh, backpacking to Europe for almost five months. And when I came back, it was very intentional on the place where I wanted to join. And and then uh, PNG became coming from marketing, the dream place. And then I think that it's be careful on what you dream for. That's also one of the phrases I use because I use because it can become true. Huh? So joining PNG and and I started a career that I really didn't know how it was going to feel like and what things I was as I was going to do, but it was fascinating the years I spent there. Well, in those early years, what were some of the lessons that you learned from some of the projects that you worked on, some of the brands that that you got to work on? I had big brands and very small projects. And a lot of the projects I had, I was working when Procter acquired Tampax. And this is a complicated brand to to sell to consumers. I've never seen a brand that has so many barriers and so many taboos and so challenging to actually talk about it with consumers. So, I think that most of my experiences 
taught me that I could sell pretty much everything provided that I spent sufficient time understanding the consumer need, the consumer barrier, and then created a proposition that was beating whatever they're, they were getting into, uh, they were getting in the market. So I think that that became the recurrent thing and the making things happen even when they were difficult. That is something that I also got from these jobs. I mean, Tampax is impossible, and then we created a model. We had a factory that was pretty much with a line ready to be disposed, and we created a product to keep that line operational. So there were a lot of little projects that it was like, how do you find the possibility out of this? Along the, in those early years, were there any moments where things didn't work out the, thought you, the way you thought they were going to? And how did you approach those situations? I think that the most, well, several projects you need to come in with, it's not failing, but if you're going to make a mistake, make sure that it's as cheap as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we had a lot of learnings. This, this model that I'm very proud about, the Tampax model, it was really people intensive. And despite it was getting very, very good results, it was coming at a time where the company was not willing to spend so much time in developing. So we needed to stop it. So the, the, the same people that created the model were the same people that said, I don't think that we are in a position to expand it. And, and I'm sorry, when you say, reason. Sylvia, when you say model, are you talking about a financial model, a marketing model? It was a combination. It was a combination of, it was grassroots marketing based, and then it became self-finance. It's just the speed because it, it really required a lot of one-on-one, almost one-on-one interventions and a very personalized approach into reaching consumers at a time where technology was less available. So that approach, while proved very successful, it was very difficult to expand it because it was very time consuming. So we needed to create it and kill it. That was very painful. Well, can, can we, t- I want to dig in on that story a little bit. So this is something you've, you found an unlock with your team on something that could build the business, but management, and I've been there, be, be it at Proctor at Danone, you unearth some new innovation that can really move the needle and you really believe in it. But then the powers that be say, we can't make this happen. It's not a priority call. How do you argue for that point? Or how do you come to that even the decision that you got to go along with it? You can't, this thing you really want to do, you can't do. How did, in that situation, in that moment, what did you do that? Well, we did, we run tests. Huh? This was not from PowerPoint to decision. It was really, we spent a lot of time with consumers and on the field, um, proving the results and coming to consumers months later. First, we validated the model. Second, we said, how do we speed it? And when we tried several ways on how to speed it, we were not getting to the place where we wanted to get. The model kept on working, but the speeding of the process didn't. (laughs) So it was really the expectations in terms of growth that we needed. They were not going to come in the time frame that we were requested. So it was a very, was very humbling to come and say, we cannot do it. And again, I think that the failure is that not being able to expand it. The learnings in which the model was based is most of the learnings that have been used uh, for the brand elsewhere or that were used at the time. So it left the learnings and, and the learnings became 
very, very useful. It's just that in the region, we were not going to expand the brand. So after some of those early experiences, your career continues to rise. You you rose through the ranks in marketing and brand management at P&G. You eventually went over to Mars and took on a number of senior positions. So as your career starts to accelerate and you get these these bigger positions, these bigger decision points, what were some of the lessons you learned there? Are there any moments where you had to face similar difficult situations? I think that my most challenging situation is when I was in Mars. I joined Mars in marketing. I was marketing for the confection business and I was the marketing head for the pet care business. And that was so much fun because I had a lot of budget and great brands. And then I was promoted as the first general manager in the country for the confection business when we separated both businesses. And at the beginning, they were under an umbrella. And then we decided that to really escalate growth, we needed to divide the businesses. So there was a general manager, my previous boss running pet care, and then I became the general manager for chocolate. Unfortunately, at the time I got the business, they were eight months late into the opening of their local factory. And when I went for the first time to visit the factory and I asked the plant manager, okay, you're late by eight months, but when do you think that you will open? And the answer was, I have no idea. Oh my God. So it was like, okay, plan B. As of January, we were, we told our supply point that we no longer needed supply. So we were going to be sufficient. And this is September. So very quickly, I realized that starting January, I was not going to have product to ship anymore. So we went to a supply point and they couldn't give us product anymore because our demand came too late. So I needed to ship Snickers and Milky Way from Australia to Mexico for the first (laughs) quarter. That couldn't have been cheap. Exactly. For the first quarter of the year. You have no idea of my PNL. And that's the way that I started as a GM with a factory that couldn't open, a new team that I was very lucky to cherry pick each of its members, and a PNL that went negative, negative, negative. So that was a turning point for everyone in that team because we needed to pretty much change everything. I can report that 10 months later, we were back in profitability. But those months were very, very difficult. I would tell you the most difficult of my career. What were the sort of, I mean, you have this team, you've inherited this situation. In that 10 months, what were some of the things you had to do? How did you motivate the team to come out from behind and and to start to accelerate the business and move your P&L? As I mentioned, since we had divided the business, we created a new team. And that team of directors, I chose, as I said, cherry-picked each one of them. So they were coming to the challenge as newly promoted directors. So the challenge is something that we all inherited. So that gives a lot of freedom to be bold on, on the decisions. We obviously created a very strong trust mechanism among us, very honest conversations, very caring of each other for everything that we needed to do and decisions that we needed to take. I needed to change the plan manager to start. So I brought expertise from 
from the world. So we started asking questions. We couldn't solve it ourselves, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't ask for help. And people were very given on offering us help from several parts of the world that were brought to Mexico to help us open that factory. And we secured supply at least from a decent, reasonable cost starting in Q2, and then focus the rest of the organization on just keeping selling, selling, selling. So with sales, try to cover the losses. Once we put all of those elements together, we had healthy share, a good growth momentum, and the factory finally started to give us product at a lower cost that covered for a lot of the losses. So as you look back on that that story, that turnaround, it sounds like a really tough 10 months, Sylvia. Is there one lesson or learning that you take away from that? So when because I'm sure there's been other scenarios like that. What what's the biggest takeaway from those 10 months? The power of being around people that you think are more talented than you. So really being intentional of choosing a very very talented team. And do not be afraid of asking asking questions and asking for help. I think that being vulnerable and asking asking help it's it's a great it's a difficult thing to do when when you're used to solve everything yourself, but it's a great skill to develop. That's so great. So you know, Sylvia, so many folks in our audience are rising professionals from very diverse backgrounds and You've spoken out quite a bit, actually, in Latin America about the advancement of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And I guess I'd love to hear from your perspective as someone operating in a lot of different regions around the world, were there ever any moments where you faced professional adversity because of your background where you might have been treated differently? That's such a good question, Raman. I think that since I, most of the time, well, not in PNG and in, in marketing, but since I... I have been in leadership positions. It tends to be very lonely or with very few women around you. So you internalize everything and you think it's natural. So that for me, it's a sign of it's not natural that you need to look to the other side when there's a joke that you don't like and you don't understand or that someone is using the idea that you just shared, they are just using maybe a nicer vocabulary or a stronger voice to share the same thing that you just did. And it's, it's, I think, over time that I started to see those kinds of behaviors as, no, this is not okay. This is not something that I need to tolerate. So over time, I started really to speaking up, taking my turn, using my voice, but it's not something that I, I did since the beginning. So I reflect on looking to the other side far too many times. And that's one of the things that right now that I mentor a lot of women, that I help them to notice and then to lead the change. Yeah, because I think sometimes we tend to take things for granted as this is the way they are. They just have to be that way and I have to deal with it. So as you're mentoring these young women, these rising professionals, how do you encourage them to speak up? Because sometimes it's not easy to speak up, especially when you don't have the title. 
when you might be the only woman in the room? Again, it's very difficult. And I think that for this, this conversation to really move forward, I am a very active boys in diversity and inclusion, not only in my company, but I, in Mexico, I mentor right now. I have four groups of mentees and each of them is, is 10 people. So I am very active on these conversations. It's not only talking to women. I think that men are as much committed to the change, but there's behaviors that they don't really realize are there. So I think that we need to talk to both, not only to women to speak up, but also to men to understand some behaviors that they might be doing, they find it natural, but that actually are creating an effect in in the people around them. Yeah, it's, it's so important to kind of, you need the insiders, not just perspective and allyship, but true understanding. Because in any one group, any one minority group, be it female, BIPOC, etc., you can't solve these problems on your own. So a lot of us face, you know, career forks in the road, these kind of inflection points where certain decisions we make set us on a path. What were some of those kind of inflection points in your career, Sylvia? Leaving PNG was a big inflection point. I left PNG in a difficult situation because I left when I was based in Venezuela. And I left the company because I was six months pregnant. And the situation in the country was really, really bad. And there was a national strike. What year would this have been, roughly? 2002. Okay. Yep. Just to so, understand what was going on in Venezuela back then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In December 2002, there was a national strike. And the company first asked us to stay home. Then a couple of days later, they said, you know, fly home whenever you find availability plane availability. So days later, I was here. In get out Mexico. of the country is what they're telling you to do. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Get out of the country. So then we packed with a carry-on and then you didn't know if you were going to see your things ever again. And then early in January, they asked us not to go back. At that time, I was six, six months pregnant. And is when I said to the company, you know, I'm not going to go back to Venezuela because I'm I'm only weeks away from not being able to travel anymore and I'm not going to have my kid there. So there was not job uh, for me in Mexico. So I stayed in Mexico doing a project and then I left the company. But it was more of this, this window that it was like, wow, this was not in my plan. So big inflection of what to do. So I had my baby and I became a strategy professor in one of the MBAs, a good reputation university in Mexico. And that year being a professor again, got me back to research, got me back to reinforcing foundations, but it also gave me the reassurance that I really liked what I was doing. And then I needed to learn to become a full-time professional and a full-time mom. And I had a year to practice. So when I joined <laughs> Mars, I was already doing a timetable for my son. So I think it, it was a good decision to go back to work. <laughs> well, I, it sounds like, you know, you had a pretty big career choice and the role of family and, you know, your newborn son really factored into that. And, and so it sounds like by the time you were my age, you were managing not just work and life, but other professionals going through the same thing. I don't believe in balance necessarily with work and life, but how do you coach the people that work for you who are going through that journey? Maybe not as harrowing as the Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
don't believe in balance either. When I say life-work balance, I tend to say, well, that's a weekly decision. It's how did I did this week, then how am I going to do things better next? So I, I really think that you need to break down things into manageable pieces. I really coach to people to get as much support as they can afford. And again, if, if we are choosing a professional leaving is because we also can we need to create the conditions for us to be successful and that's for getting support. And with this weekly balance is making sure that you're always balancing not on time management, but on your priorities, that you're spending time on the things that matter and that matter to you. So I'll give you an example. Is I used to have, I mean, we all manage our calendars in, in the mobile, but I need to have a visual thing for the full month or the full year because I need to include in my calendar the events that are relevant for my kids. Right now, they're not babies anymore, but when they were little, I would never meet the spring festival or Mother's Day, even if I needed to cancel a trip to be there. I will never miss the weekend together on doing something that was important for them. So those kinds of mechanisms became critical and, and they are very they're really integrated in the way that I approach my life and therefore the way that I approach my agenda and my relationships. I love the idea of, you know, weekly priorities almost and kind of revisiting it and recalibrating because there's this cliche that, you know, when we're on our deathbed, we're not going to be thinking about that PowerPoint or that pitch, but you might remember playing with the Legos. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And now a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to Andrew Tarvin, co-host of the PNG Alumni Pod. Drew, wait, what's going on here, dude? What do you mean, Roman? You're supposed to be asking me thoughtfully leading questions about my great new ad, Venture Up. Oh, gosh. Has it really come to this, dude? <laughs> what do you mean? Is this supposed to be like one of those public radio pledge drive ads? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, Roman. We don't have any tote bags yet. Okay, then what the heck is this about? Well, I mean, you know this podcast doesn't exactly pay for itself. What? Are you trying to tell me that guest microphones and post-interview production doesn't grow on trees? Uh, sadly, no. And you and I do have day jobs and families, so we probably shouldn't be hand-delivering loner microphones to John Pepper or Meg Whitman anymore. We've come so far. I actually had a friend walk a microphone over to Edward Goh's house in Cincinnati once, and I even left one on Salesforce Executive's porch. Right. See, exactly. We've got to step up our game. And by now, you've heard some of the fantastic ads from a number of PNG alumni entrepreneurs, and we're grateful to all of our early supporters. But we also need your help, the listener, to step in too. Yeah, each week, many of you, having worked at or never worked at PNG, tune in to hear learnings from leaders, and we want you to feature on an upcoming show. This is a great way to let people know about your business. Past sponsors include independent advertising agencies, consultancies on both sides of the pond, software companies, fellow alumni podcasts, DTC and retail brands, and even organizations that do good, like the PNG Alumni Foundation and the Freedom Center. Sponsor packages are affordable and flexible. They can be single episode sponsorships, or we can create multi-episode packages. Want to be the sponsor for a few months, and we might even have you on an episode, if you've got the learnings. We can even create bigger integration packages with the broader PNG Alumni Network. I mean, we do know people. Roman, aren't you still on the board of the PNG Alumni Network? 
Well, after this ad, I'm not sure for how much longer, Drew. <laughs> well, operators are standing by. We'd love to explore a partnership with you, our favorite listener. Dude, you can't say that. John Pepper, our favorite listener, is listening. <laughs> Sorry, I meant uh, our other favorite listener after John Pepper and my mom. And my mom. Yeah, so that makes that person the fourth favorite listener. So be a minch, sponsor the pod, and we may even throw in that free tote bag eventually. Email us at pgalumpod at gmail.com. Let's have a chat, and we promise you'll never have to listen to a terrible ad like this again. Uh, Roman, I think you meant to say a great ad like this. I mean, it was full of humor that works. Uh, Drew, I think I now have to charge you as a sponsor. (laughs) I'll have my people call your people. And now back to our show. Was there ever a moment where you where you took your foot off the gas pedal after you joined Mars, after you started to accelerate in your career with Danone? But this year, when I was the professor, I think it's, it's really the year when I, I took myself a little bit out of the linear career. And my coming back, it was by choice. And also another, when I left Mars and before joining Danone, I was really looking at different alternatives on what I was going to do next. And I had months to plan for that transition. And I was really between two very different and interesting offers. And and I chose Danon because I really felt that in me that this is a job that I really wanted to do. But what I really liked is that both of those movements, my life-changing movements, both Mars and Danon, I had time to reflect upon them and, and they were decisions. That's great. Who have been some of your mentors along the way and what are some of the lessons that you've learned from them? My first, I think, meaningful mentor, it's uh, Martha Miller, which was the PNG general manager. And I remember being a very young AVM not liking her marketing director that much. So I was <laughs> ready to leave the company and, and, and then before making a bold and irresponsible decision, I just asked for time with her. And it was kind of bold because I was really stepping three levels above me and just go for a one-on-one. But I said, well, if I'm going to leave anyway, doesn't matter, right? So I went upstairs go through the three assistants to get to her. And then when I get into her office, she looks back at me and just by seeing me, okay, she puts a box of Kleenex in front of us. Wow. And then, well, the rest of the story, you know, obviously I stayed, but she has become one of the persons that I go to. I still go to for questions, for ideas and the very nice thing is that in the last year, she has come to me twice. And I feel very, it feels very good to do now reverse coaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's those relationships over time, they kind of go both ways. They become yes, yes. trusted friends. So she, she's the one, I think, that marked me the most, mainly because of the age I, I had. But I had had great mentors in PNG, in Mars, the person that recruited me, Leon Craig, Pierre Louvi, in Danone, Francisco Camacho. So great, great guys and gals. So Sylvia, you've kind of alluded to it, but we're living through some particularly crazy and challenging times. As someone who's worn a lot of hats at a lot of companies and continues to be a purpose-driven leader, 
What advice would you give to our leaders in society, not just in business, but in government and the people who are kind of trying to st- steer us through these challenging times? What would you want to tell them? Oh, wow. <laughs> you got me off guard on that one. First, I admire people's resilience and that in events like this, the thing that you remember the most is the care that you receive and really the following you on this important moments emotionally. So I, I do think that we need to be very attentive to that, how people are personally managing all of these situations and helping them in the emotional part and helping them with decisive decisions. Even if your decision, you need to create a, a smaller time for that decision or how would I say it? An expiration date for that decision with information you have, be decisive, even if you need to revisit that decision a week after you took it. But it's keep on giving windows of certainty to people. Again, because emotionally we are fragile. So when you have decisions taken, it you feel secure and it gives you freedom. So I think it's that combination of being caring while being decisive. Yeah, I think it's almost this bias for action to keep these things moving, but not being afraid to kind of revisit and kind of iterate constantly versus almost being paralyzed by a much bigger decision. Right. Right. Because right now it's not, no, you don't have perfect information. So you need to act upon the information you have and not acting is a decision. That's true. That's true. So what are you excited about today? Today in my job, I'm very excited about the possibility we bring to to people to take care of themselves and take care of their families. So on all the the things that we've done for managing COVID, we make sure that what we do, it's something that people can take home and help people around them. That really excites me. And it's a very tricky question because the situation in which we are living right now in Mexico is very complicated, but you need to find those rays of hope. Yeah, the times are challenging and the only way to move forward is to kind of challenge yourself and get excited by the challenges sometimes. If you had an email or even a Twitter time machine, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, to stress less. (laughs) (laughs) Stress less, trust more, suffer less, enjoy more again. (laughs) Do you think the younger version of yourself would listen? Not much. (laughs) (laughs) Sylvia, this has been such a fun conversation. We've only got a few more minutes. I'd love to ask some more fun questions. What's something about you that surprises people? I think that they surprise they're surprised that I like being a Mexican. I really like American football and then I follow all the statistics on tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your team? Who's my team? Yeah. Mm, 49ers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, my season was over very early this year. And I follow Nadal on, on, on tennis. And, and yes, I'm the kind of person right now is the Australian Open going on. So I go to bed very late. <laughs> <laughs> What's your go-to media escape? Are you more of a movie, book, or TV person? I love movies, but I love going to the 
to the movie theaters, which is something that I have not done in the last year. I miss year. it so much. Oh, oh I miss it so much. Then if movies are not my guilty pleasure is to watch series and I love reading. Well, so what's a movie that has characters that you really relate to? Oh, wow. I really like When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> <laughs> That's my old, my favorite old movie. That's great. I like adventure movies, so I really liked all of the series of Harry Potter. I really enjoyed them. Nice. Which house would you be at? Are you more Gryffindor or Ravenclaw? No, <laughs> Gryffindor, of course. <laughs> <laughs> What's one of the TV shows that's a guilty pleasure right now that's getting you through the not being able to go to the theater? I really like, and this is guilty pressure, huh? I like everything that are cooking shows and dessert shows and all of those. I see them all. <laughs> and I bet you're wondering, you should sub out that sour cream for yogurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of those. And then the ones that I cannot recreate, of course, and like Zumbo, I just want to fly to Australia and eat everything. But I like those. And what about books? Is there a book that you've read that you might give to a friend? Oh, there's several. Depending on where they are, there are some Mexican history. I really like novels and I like Julia Navarro, Isabel Allende. Then there are books like I loved Homo Sapiens and all those series. I like also some like the Hiram Key and now I'm reading with something about Joe Dispenza. So I, I read a lot of things. So it depending on what is my friend interested in, I tend to give every Christmas books for, for gifts. That's great. What would you do if you had infinite resources to do or learn any one new thing? I would learn a lot on how to, how to develop really self-sustainable businesses with a women angle. So that's where I like spending my time in developing communities. That's and great. using technology to do so. So how can we really move the needle? Not f when we look at rural women, we only think on, on doing arts and crafts and things like that when, when what they need, it's, it's something more meaningful and self-sustainable. And again, with the use of technology, that, that is what I would love to learn and train. That's great. Who is someone out there that you would still want to get a coffee with? Oh, I am very curious. I could get a coffee pretty much with anyone. I really <laughs> Pick this one. Most famous person, alive or dead. You can meet anyone now. Michelle Obama, of course. What would you ask her? How she was the support behind the scenes and why she didn't jump into being more in the front and how she holds it back. I don't know. She might, maybe she'll, uh, maybe. I know, I know. <laughs> it might be happening. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvia, what's one final piece of advice or even a challenge that you would give to the next generation? I would always encourage them to remain curious. So it doesn't matter if you've learned something, try to unlearn, unlearn it a little bit after so, so new information can come. So remain with that curiosity. And don't be afraid of, of making mistakes. It's falling is not relevant. Bouncing back is what is relevant. That's just wonderful advice. Sylvia, this has been such a 
fun and lovely conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and, and the things you've learned along your career. Roman, thank you very much. It's lovely talking to you. See, this is one of the coffees that I wanted to have. <laughs> well, we'll definitely get one of those soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode. Diversity, equity, inclusion, engagement. What are the opportunities and how do we address that? We put together a business plan because we are a business. Connecting this to the business allows everybody in the organization to see themselves. How this benefits you as being a member of the company because you would see the impact it would have on your function where you could play a role. So internally, we look at the feedback system, the compensation system, the hiring system, the promotion system, which systems are being administered equally and fairly and which ones aren't. That allowed us to create a level playing field for everybody. Connecting our why to our business values and principles is how we have been able to be successful where the community looks to us as a leader, not just because of who's on the court, but also because of the work that we're doing in this space. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.